Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hello and welcome to this episode of Great Women in Compliance, sponsored by Compliance Podcast Network and Corporate Compliance Insights. I am so excited to introduce our guest today, Jessica Hayden, my very good friend. We met about four or five years ago, just as I was preparing for my new role at Disney. She was working at Disney at the time, and we were both in the compliance function in the global ethics team. Jessica, I can't wait to talk to you today. The title of this podcast is going to be Sliding Doors, and I think our audience is going to be simply enchanted by your path and your journey. So let me just start by asking the simple question, where are you now? I am sitting in my house in Vassenaar in the Netherlands. So my family moved here this summer. It is actually sunny out today, which is very rare. We've had rain for about the last two months straight. So it's a sunny day, which is a great day to do a podcast. And what brought you to the Netherlands? So I am married to a foreign service officer, which in all of my compliance trainings, I used to always talk about how I am government related. So we have, for the last 20 years, served in multiple different countries. We've been in Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Turkey. My husband spent a year in Iraq, Ukraine, and now we're in the Netherlands. So we've been moving west over 20 years. (laughs) And you're very much more than just a government-related wife of a foreign service official. You have obviously a very illustrious career yourself. And we'd love to hear a bit more about how you've navigated your career Um, at the same time as being in all those countries and all those wonderful jurisdictions with your husband and your family? Oh, absolutely. So I actually met my husband when we were in law school. Um, And I remember talking about he was in training and he was about to get his first assignment. And we had this, from a very early stage in our marriage, conversations about how do we make both of these careers work? And so early on, for about the first 10 years we were married, we really took turns. He would take the lead for a couple of years. I would take the lead for a couple of years. I spent, after law school, I clerked for a year. And then we moved to Azerbaijan, where I had a fellowship with the American Bar Association. And then I came back to D.C. and worked for Williams and Connolly. And that's really where I got experience in litigation and then really dipped my toes into the FCPA world. Incredible. Just the the idea for a, a junior lawyer to start taking breaks in their career sounds quite scary to the average the average law student. So tell us how you navigated those decisions. Obviously, your husband was a great motivation and you took turns, but but tell us about how that felt at the time. Yeah, I, I never really thought of them as breaks. It was different opportunities mm-hmm. and opportunities that maybe I wouldn't have been open to if it weren't for my husband. Baku, Azerbaijan was never on my map as somewhere <laughs> that I was going to go and grow my law career. But because we were going there, I was able to find a really neat opportunity. I was doing work on freedom of speech. I did some work as a freelance journalist while we were there. And so I would cover trials. I would sit in the back of the courtroom and publish a bunch of articles on what was going there in the political sphere. So it it really has opened doors that I didn't even know existed. So it's been, yeah, it's been different for sure. And what took you from that, being at Williams and Connolly, working in, the, in as a, maybe as a, a freelance journalist in Azerbaijan courts, I think I've heard you say, to anti-corruption? How did you get into compliance from that piece then? So I was on maternity leave with my daughter in 2011, and I'd heard through the grapevine that an FCPA case had come in 
uh, to the firm. And so I started, my wheels started spinning. I knew at that time that we were going to be moving to Turkey in a couple of years. And I saw compliance as really this great mixture of both the legal aspect and my international experience. So it's really hard for an American lawyer to live overseas and practice practice law the way we would in the States. But this is something where I could bring the U.S. legal experience, but also, you know, I speak some foreign, I don't speak fluently, but I have some foreign language experience and I, I've lived in some different places and have, have at least a basic understanding. So when I went back to the firm for maternity leave, I talked my way on onto that case and <laughs> it's been it's been compliance ever since. And they often say you need some cultural awareness to be able to do those types of global international cases, whether it's an investigation or even just cultural work. How is it from the vantage point of actually living in those countries that you're investigating? Yeah, it was, I, I think it made a huge difference. We moved to Turkey in 2013 and I started, I was working at the time, it was News Corporation at the time, and we had offices in Istanbul. And so I was in Ankara, I'd fly up to Istanbul every couple of weeks. And I think from just a rapport stance and from building connections and being able to really understand what was going on in the office. The fact that I had two little kids who were living in Ankara and attending preschool and I was learning Turkish, it, it made my job so much easier to be able to build those relationships, to be able to, when there were investigations, to understand what was going on better. And so I think that's, I think having international experience is wonderful for any compliance officer to be able to get into the field and really understand. We can sit at corporate headquarters and we can say, we have these policies and everybody should be following them. But what are the realities on the ground that maybe prevent people from doing that? Or is there a better way to be doing it? Like we don't, sitting in corporate headquarters, we don't know um, what's going on day to day and how we can do things better. So that was a really good lesson that I learned there. And you're touching on something that's just, I think, so fundamental to our profession, which is genuine trust building. Right? You don't have to have your children in preschool at the local school, but certainly anything you can do, I think, in our profession to make sure that people feel seen, heard and valued and not, as you say, just lauded upon by the corporate headquarters, wherever that may be. Absolutely. And I was always very sensitive to the fact that I was, I never wanted to be seen as the American in the my, my pristine suit coming in with really no idea of what was going on the ground and telling people what to do. So I always approached it from a listening perspective, and I think that was helpful. So we you talked about the sliding doors of your career. I think we should probably give the gift to our audience of letting them hear a little bit more about where you've been and what different jobs you've taken on and how we got there. So let's do that a little bit. We talked about Williams and Connolly. What was the next step for you? So when I moved to Turkey, I was working for News Corporation, and I started out actually in a contracting role. So I didn't immediately go in-house and it worked really well. I had two young kids at the time and it was a really good balance for me at the time. I traveled a bunch, but I was able to manage both the international move and young kids. But ultimately I was doing a lot of work in Asia and the company needed a group chief compliance officer in Asia. So I signed on for a, a, a more full-time role and got to, I probably about every six weeks I was in Asia. And by the time I left, I visited every territory. So for me as a traveler, it was just a joy to get to go to a bunch of places I'd never been. As 21st Century Fox was bought by Disney. So News Corporation became 21st Century Fox, was bought by Disney. So I transitioned over to the compliance team at Disney. 
I, by that time, was back living in the United States for a bit. And then ultimately, my family was posted to Ukraine. And so I stayed with Disney for a bit and then took a job with Comcast. And I was there for a couple of years um, until just recently, until last May. So the the jobs and the moves don't always line up at the same time. But one of the great blessings is I've had leaders and bosses and colleagues who have recognized that I could do my job from multiple locations. And I'm incredibly grateful because this was a lot of this was pre-COVID. And it was it was such a gift to have that trust and to have that really foresight to say, this is a job that can be done multiple places. You make it sound so effortless, Jess, <laughs> as if you could be all of those things with two young children on your hip. <laughs> I think it's three children now. <laughs> now was it not effortless? Were you just so lucky? Were people just looking after you? Or what was going on there? Does it sound as easy as it, as it sounds? I think part of it has, and I've talked to a lot of other spouses of military and spouses of foreign service, a lot of it is flexibility, I think. And I think if we're tied to a vision of what our career must look like, it's very easy to get frustrated and it's very easy to get dejected. And I've seen a lot of people give up. I'm not sure when I was sitting as a 1L or a 2L, I ever envisioned that I would be in Ukraine at my desk on calls with LA working in, in compliance. But I think I looked for opportunities along the way and built relationships and built the trust with the people that I worked with to be able to make that happen. But ultimately, it's as it's not easy to juggle all the things, right? It's ups and downs. And what do I need to prioritize in this moment to get from point A to point B? Lots of trade-offs. Everybody knows there's lots of trade-offs. Jess, you you epitomized to me the, the model of doing hard things well. And certainly you leave us with that impression that you've gracefully navigated these things. But you've done some really hard things. Even since I've known you, you've, you, you mentioned that you were in Ukraine. You didn't mention that you had to be evacuated from Ukraine with your family. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that, if you don't mind, and what you've learned in having to navigate those hard things well. Because it's one thing to say, yeah, have a good attitude, be flexible. But in the moment, it's not that easy, is it? It is not. And I think the evacuation in Ukraine was a real turning point in both my life and in my career, because it was, you always think, okay, if I had to leave a place, the embassy always talks about having a go bag. And I was leaving to a place where I had family who spoke the language. We had support systems. My husband stayed behind. And so I had the kids. It was so one foot in front of the next kind of hard. Every day you woke up and it was We had to think about, are we going to put our kids back in school in the States or are we going to wait to see if we can go back? We left in January before the war happened. And then once the war did happen, you're trying to explain to kids the images that they're seeing on TV are the streets where you were walking. And the Christmas market that we've been to not long ago, there's now CNN reporting in front of. So it was, you're going through all the emotions, but then also trying to support your kids at the same time. Uh, So that was a real challenge. And also you and I have talked about separately. For me, it was so perspective shifting in that this is hard for me and I have all of the supports. And I had lived in Turkey before and done some volunteer refugee work. And I came back and I felt such a connection and such a need to help people for whom this is. They've lost their home. This Ukraine was my temporary home, but this to need to leave that forever 
and not speak the language. And our immigration system is so confusing if you speak the language. It's not it's not an easy thing. So in the last couple of years, I've started taking on pro bono immigration cases, really, because this it's for me, it felt like this is my purpose. This is what I should be doing. That's so moving. And I think you've just said you you figured out your purpose again. That doesn't come overnight. <laughs> How did you focus on that and make decisions to, to make a decision to make decisions to follow your purpose? Because that's, again, not something that's, I think a lot of us struggle with that. And it's not something that we all know how to navigate. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I was really lucky. A friend of mine had a friend who was going through an executive coaching course at Georgetown. And she needed some bro- pro bono clients. And so I raised my hand. I said, that sounds great. I'd love to be a guinea pig. And so we started meeting and it was enormously helpful to have an objective person to talk to. Initially, we were talking about management style and I had a team uh, in Philadelphia and what can I be doing better to better manage my team? And then we moved into the bigger picture of what am I doing and does that mesh with where I am in my life right now? And it's not... I think one of the benefits of having this kind of non-traditional career path is I can look at taking a step back right now and say, this isn't forever, right? This is what I need in the moment. And right now, where I'm being pushed or pulled is to something a little different, but that's not necessarily the next 20 years of my life. But I'm a people pleaser. And so it was very hard for me to make decisions where I felt like I was letting anybody else down. And so it took a lot of work to walk away also from what what I've been doing for so long, what was really part of my identity. Such a common theme where we define success maybe by one type of identity, one type of job, one type of salary. And it seems, it shouldn't be so brave, but it seems incredibly brave to just reframe that and reassess that, let alone to act on it, (laughs) to open another door for yourself. How is that for you? Yeah, I I think what... One of the things that really pushed me forward is I had these, and people talk about voices in their head, but that that little voice back there that's saying, this is not right, right now, right? There's, and part of, I was raising three kids, being evacuated as a single mom for about a year, solo mom. And and that was following COVID where I felt like, I think about this a lot now, if I could go back in time, the things I would have done differently and I think during COVID, I made a lot of decisions. This is this is going to be the next month. I'm prioritizing career and my, not that I put my kids to the side, but it, the decisions that we made during COVID were so hard, right? Like my kids, they come home, they don't go to school, they're on tech. Um, and I look back on that now and wish I'd done things differently. And I think I got to the point where they just needed more of my time right now. I always thought as they got older, it would get easier and I'd have more. But it, it just, I know somebody told me that at some point and I thought that's crazy. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's true. <laughs> um, when they're 18, probably even more. I don't yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I think it was just about what my family needed right now and what I needed. And I think that helped in making the decision for right now. But I had a great team at Comcast. I had a great boss. I really liked the work I was doing. And so that, and that was part of the internal dialogue of how do you leave something that really is good, right? It's really good. And it felt very selfish almost in a way to make that decision. And it ultimately it was, I, I was making a choice 
for myself, really. And that's a hard thing to do. Just thank you for just even saying that and using those words, because I think often we are taught to call these things selfish and shy away from them and leave them to the last, the list of the things we've got to do. And I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that only when we do right by ourselves can we really fully be present and do right by others. I think that's really powerful, easy to say, of course, and very hard (laughs) to your point to do. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just, I was thinking, uh, selfish has such a negative connotation but it's not always negative. It's okay to be selfish sometimes. And as a working mother, I think it is so easy to deprioritize yourself. You've got to get that list of 30 things done between now and Wednesday. And the things that you do solely for you always fall to the bottom of the list. And I think being able to sometimes pull those up to the top is a really good thing. It's an important thing. And I have to say, oh, I'm sorry. I have to say, I have noticed a huge difference in my relationship with my kids over the past six months. My level of stress has, life is still stressful. We just did an international move. I've got teenagers who have all sorts of drama in their life. There's stress, but I think I'm able to cope with it a little bit better and I'm not bringing additional stress into it, which for this moment is really helpful. Yeah, you just covered the thought I was having exactly, which is we say it's selfish, I think, because implied in that is there's some guilt on the other side that we're not doing something for other people. But actually, in the end, everyone wins if mom looks after herself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know you're more more than a mom, but you're a mom first. So that's why I say that. The other thing you you provoked to me was just this idea that you, you pried open this door, this really interesting door of leaving corporate life to pursue your passion. I do want to talk a bit more about what you're doing with that. But there is a tendency to look back through the door and wonder why I didn't open it sooner. That's what I'm hearing from you. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about that. I just, I think when COVID hit and we moved, and I was already working remotely, and we moved into this virtual world, it was very hard to make decisions because we didn't know what, the amount of uncertainty, I think we forget already about what those early days were like and how... I just, I don't think, I hope never in my life I experienced a period like that again, where it was just the responsibilities, the pressure, the worry about the illness. It was day-to-day tough getting through that. And I think my burnout came because I didn't make the decision to step back earlier. And it took a war for me to come out and say, this is too much. It's too much. And I I remember talking to a lawyer friend years ago who left, she worked in a law firm for seven or eight years and she had kids and she left and she said, I felt like I couldn't do both. And I always felt like, well, I I can do both. I think you can, but I I don't think you have to do both all the time. Right. And there's, and and I don't know, I I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a quote about balances. You you imagine, and I'm going to get this totally wrong. You're on a balance beam. And when you walk down a balance beam, you're not going straight down the little, you lean to the left, you lean to the right. Balancing isn't static. And right now I'm leaning more to the left. And at some point I'll come back to the center and lean to the right. So I don't know. All these decisions are very hard and they're very personal. They are hard. And and clearly clearly something you have to consider very carefully before you make them. I think the the reason I'm so grateful that you're sharing this part of your story is because I'm sure there are a lot of our audience members out there that are in positions where they're just not sure about making their next move or what they should do next. And there are a number of 
barriers or hurdles to making those decisions. Like you said, you might be the sole breadwinner. You might be very much connected to your identity. I know I am very much connected to my identity as a lawyer. And when offered a non-lawyer job, I was like, what? I can't give up my career as a lawyer, for example. Very connected to the salary, whether it's you're a breadwinner or not. Still, you might think, why would I go down in salary? That What kind of success is that? And I think, I hope that some of them are hearing that this lady, Jessica Hayden, <laughs> was able to do this in these circumstances. And it doesn't take a war <laughs> for us to be able to make some decisions that are in our interest and ultimately in those of our family. It does make me think a little bit about how in our line of work, going back just to the corporate compliance piece for a second, we meet a lot of people that aren't happy at work for whatever reason. Maybe they've got right. good justification, they're not being treated well, or maybe they're just doing the wrong place at the wrong time, but feel very scared to do something about that. And so I'd, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you would say to those people about what they, sh- how they should approach that challenge. Yeah, in, in terms of people who right now are unhappy at work. Yes. Yeah. I think, listen to that voice. If it doesn't go away, pay it more attention. And that there's, a, there's an element of what can you take from this job right now that will be beneficial to you, right? There is no perfect job out there. But I think when I look back over my career, I've learned something, multiple important things from each job, right? Maybe the kind of work I was doing wasn't what I originally thought, but I got to learn how to better manage a team or I wasn't traveling as much as I thought I would be, but here I am and I get to learn about this whole other field of privacy that I never knew was going to be part of my job. There's always an opportunity to take something and build onto that for the next thing. So let's take a little bit of a different track, Jess, because we've talked a little bit about how you navigate change, but I want to talk about your role as a (laughs) mum. I was fortunate to read an article that you interviewed your son and you published what he had to say. And one of the things that struck me, you could tell us about that a bit, but what struck me is he said that one of the things he'd really want is to have two of you. (laughs) Could you talk us a little bit about what that article was about and and how that impacted you when he said that? Yeah, so I did some writing. There's a magazine called the Foreign Service Journal. And my husband spent a year in Iraq when our kids were seven, five, and three. So that that was a, a big learning experience. I, I actually just finished, I'm six years behind in photo albums and I just <laughs> finished a photo album from that year. So all of these memories are very fresh in my mind. And so I sat down with him and I recorded, I actually have it on audio somewhere. I recorded our conversation and just asked him what it was like to spend a year without his dad. And I said, if you could have anything, what could you have? And he said, I'd like two moms. And I remember thinking, yes, I would like that too. <laughs> I need another one of me. One, one to go to work and one to stay home and cook. and But it, it, it was really important. And I just with kids in general to ask the open-ended questions and you get such great responses in terms of what they're thinking and what the experience was like for them. It's just so affirming too, because they're seeing exactly what you're seeing. <laughs> I think sometimes we think you're hiding it from them, but actually they're seeing what you're seeing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Throughout the whole year, we didn't talk a lot. He was in Northern Iraq and really was not, near any sort of danger. But at the time, he said, I'm worried about my dad dying. And I, we never talked about it. I never thought it was at all something that he was concerned about. So even when kids aren't talking about it, they often are thinking about it. 
No, I 100% agree. And I always draw so many parallels from our lessons we learn as mums and dads that we can bring into our work. And it just is, you're right, sometimes we just don't know what people are thinking and we should just ask the question. Another thing that I wanted just to cover with you because I thought it just came across so much from what you've been saying earlier today is the power that you've got to choose what you take from each experience. Very easy to say in hindsight. <laughs> you learn these things and you take them with them. But at the time, it's quite hard to see that. So I just wanted to highlight that and have you talk a little bit about how you've exercised your power, your very real power to choose what you take from each experience, good and bad, and bring that forward with you into your choices. Yeah, I hope I don't make the same mistake twice. That's the most important choice, I think. But yeah, I think... I'm at heart, I think, an optimist. And so when I look back on negative experiences, I really do try to see what is the good that came out of that. I look back at the year my husband was in Iraq, and that was, I went into it thinking, this is just going to be the worst year. Like, how am I? I've got three little kids. I am on my own. And ultimately, I learned one, I was never really on my own. I had grandparents and friends. And we actually had a really fun year. And so I, I think the strength that I, the knowledge that I could get through something like that when the war in Ukraine hit, I think gave me a leg to stand on in that this is really hard. This is the unexpected nature of it. The, the fact my son had classmates who were at the border who were trying to get across and were stuck. The personal tragedies that were so close to us, having had that experience before of getting through something tough really gave me the ability to, I think, get through that with a little bit more grace. You remind me of the yeah. phrase, when something bad is happening, always look for the helpers. And it sounds yes. like you had a lot of helpers yeah. in some- A lot of helpers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And there's one other thing I wanted just to end with you. I think you carry around a Polaroid photo which helps <laughs> you. So please tell us a little bit about the photo. I see it right there. <laughs> yeah. So this was the year my husband was in Iraq. We had gone to a friend's house for dinner. And as we were leaving, their son took this little Polaroid photo. And we're just standing in an apartment building hall. My kids, some of them have shoes on, some don't. None of us are really looking at the camera, but we're all hugged in together. And I love it so much because it reminds me of just the joy in everyday life and in the joy of doing the normal things in the midst of challenging times, right? Like that just, I felt very powerful in my motherhood at that point. And so, yeah, I love it. I love it. It's a, in years, somebody will look at this and wonder why it's in a frame, <laughs> but it's, it's one of my treasures. May we all have our own Polaroid photo to remind us of how we've navigated these hard things. Jess, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. I know there are many more, so we'll probably have to have you back. But I'm really grateful to you for spending the time. And we will be back again next week with Corporate Compliance Podcasts and Corporate Compliance Insights. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.